in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to have you with me another Tuesday evening, reflecting into the richness of our faith, in particular, uh, a night where we have the opportunity to discuss John, the great Christian thinkers in history, uh, which affords us then the opportunity to talk the stuff of church history and for you faithful listeners out there, you know that I have John O'Hara, uh, parishioner of St. John the Baptist Catholic Church and retired educator with me. So, John, good to have you with me tonight again. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here. So, John, we're going to be talking about John again. Okay. This is good stuff. So, you know, what are we doing? By way of review, we are in our seventh week here, John. And, you know, typically when you hear the phrase great Christian thinkers in history or just church history, we usually start... Um, after Christ, right? But what we're about here is still laying the foundation, uh, asking those important uh, questions of what is history, why should we study history, and with that foundation, starting with where Christ started, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're in John. Last week, we looked at John as, as the fisherman, uh, the beloved disciple. Tonight, we're going to have the opportunity to look at him as a theologian, you know, we so often talk, John, about Kronos uh, and Kairos. Tonight is very much about Kairos. Remember, Kronos, chronology, man's time, Kairos, chirology, God's time, grace time, purpose-driven time. Uh, and tonight is, is certainly going to afford us the opportunity to, to get into Kairos, God's time, grace time as we have the opportunity to soar with John. You know, John is given the symbol of the eagle, right? Because he soars, he flies. You know, we, it, it, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we have uh, authors and evangelists that give us a, a portrait of Christ in his works, um, you know, a kind of a summary of, of his life. John picks up some of his miracles, of course, but he goes deeper, and he asks us to go deeper with him, John. Everybody knows Gospel According to John, Chapter 1. That's an indication of what you're going to be in for. Yeah. You read John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. Because he's a theologian. And what is a theologian? It's simply defined. A theologian is uh, one who in faith is seeking understanding. The classical, you know, fides corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. But... I want to add something else to this, John, when we talk about what it means to be a theologian. You know, so often we put faith and science against each other, but what we forget is that theology is a spiritual science. At the first universities, what were they studying? Philosophy, theology, medicine, rhetoric. These were seen, philosophy and theology were seen as, as the queen and king of all sciences. That's St. Anselm, Anselm's definition, yes. faith seeking understanding is good. Remember, it's not understanding seeking faith. That doesn't work. No. 
No, yeah, because one must precede, uh, uh, precede the other. It's, uh, it's uh, come and see, not see and come. And John reminds us of this, right? <laughs> so very important. Uh, I talk about this because there is this uh, contention between faith and science, but we are to see how they illuminate each other. I mean, John beautifully gives us principles, tools to better understand how to be a good theologian. And hey, let's, let's put it in simple terms, John, every time we go to Mass, every time we go to a service where there's the Old Testament, New Testament, we are budding theologians because we're being made to see how Christ fulfills and transforms the Old Testament. We, we are all getting a deeper understanding of who God is and who He's calling us to be every time we go to Mass. And this is what is at the heart of our faith and certainly at the heart of John's gospel. He uses things that are familiar, John, to explain things that are unfamiliar. He is uh, an excellent catechist. He is an excellent teacher. And as one who is excellent, he kind of raises the bar, you know, and he he says, roll up your sleeves and it's time to do some work because you're a, you're a spiritual scientist. <laughs> so he's very provocative in the opening here with his gospel. We have these opening words, in the beginning. Right? So immediately, if you're reading this in the first century, or if you're hearing John, and you see these words, where do you go? Genesis. <laughs> yeah, Genesis, in the beginning, right? And then he, he gives us days. Uh, light, darkness, these images that resonate with the story of Genesis. Uh, beautifully early on in chapter 2, right? The, the, one of the initial expressions of man is what? Woman. What was the first expression of man in Genesis? Woman. And, and, and believe me, so this is very intentional for John. He wants us to go back into Genesis and begin to, yes, work in the tall grass, and by doing so, we can begin to appreciate what Christ is all about. You know, Christ came to establish the church, and it has this sacramental quality, John. And, and generally speaking, a sacrament, right, an outward sign signifying an inward reality. There's mystery to it, but because there's mystery to it, the Holy Spirit calls us to go deeper. Now, we live in a world today that when there's mystery, oh, we're all about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> we want to go there. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI once said, let God surprise you in the mystery. Oh, I love that phrase. Let God surprise you in the mystery. It draws us in. We all love a good mystery novel. And we like to solve those mystery novels, don't we? Well, we have a great mystery novel, now it's been solved. But yet for us, in our own walk, in our own stage of faith, the Holy Spirit beckons us. Come and see right? Not see and come, (laughs) come and see. And so beautifully, he lays out um, these principles. And in a very provocative way, again, in his opening chapter, he wants us thinking about the story of creation. Now, why would he do this? Uh, The simplest way of putting it is that he wants us to see that Christ has come to transform creation. And in doing so, he calls us you and I and, and all of our listeners out there, John, wherever you may be, to become a new creation in Christ. If you were to pull out a theme from Paul, 
You know, I think he only uses the phrase twice. But if you were to pull out a theme, it is new creation. Because all of his epistles are about being a new creation in Christ. This is a thought I have about Genesis. It's about God, the creator. And this is a thought I have about the first chapter of John. It's about Jesus Christ, the Savior, equal to God the Father, both are God. This is just what I kind of, yeah. this way, I think he may have done it because he's talking about Christ, and what's, what did Christ do? Christ saved us through yeah. his death. Yeah, and so he lays this out for us to, to better understand how we are called to share in what you're talking about, uh, John. You know, it's 2 Peter 1.4 who says we are called to participate in, in, in our Savior's life and in, in, in his redemption, in his divine nature. Um, so how do we do that? Well, in light of what we're talking about in so far as John using things that are familiar to explain things that are unfamiliar, he's bringing us back to Genesis. I want us to go to John 1, 29, an image of the Old Testament, a rich, rich image of the Old Testament that draws us in and certainly uh, should have us asking questions. Why? Because quite simply, in verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, let's think about this, John. Another man in human history says to another man, and maybe as he's coming over the hill, Behold an animal. That's strange, John. It depends on the animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for the Baptist, John the Baptist, to say to this man, and he's, Look, look. He's pointing his finger, look, behold the Lamb of God. As readers of Scripture, what should we be asking? What on God's green earth is John the Baptist talking about? He's the Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lamb of God? What are you talking about? The Lamb was used in the first, I guess you'd call it Seder dinner, back in Egypt. The Lamb has been around for a while. Yes. And so when John makes, you know, we when John makes that reference, the lamb is familiar to Jewish people. And here is the lamb. Yeah, and it, it goes all the way back, John, to uh, you know, Cain and Abel, right? When they're uh when they bring uh -huh. to the Lord an offering, it's Cain who brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. You know, and Abel brings firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. There you have it. Genesis four, three, four, all the way back to Genesis four. And of course, in due time, we see encounters between Noah and God and offerings, burnt offerings, where animals were involved. Noah, Genesis 8, Abraham, Genesis 15, Jacob, and Genesis 46, and many others. Ultimately, what we see in the Old Testament is this motif developing. That is, the call for the lamb to be sacrificed as an offering to God. Now, the richest one, of course, could be found in... Abraham, where if you go to Genesis 22, uh, verse 2, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains. It's interesting, in, in uh, Israelite tradition, uh, recorded in the Second Chronicles 3.1 there, John, um, Moriah is identified with the future temple site in Jerusalem, which is really fun to play around with. Um, so, 
In Genesis 22, Abraham travels with Isaac. He carries uh, wood on his back for the sacrifice. And in the great verse there in Genesis 22, 8, you know, when Isaac asked, where was the victim? Abraham replies, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And of course, I think most of us know the story. In the end, the angel of God did stay Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son and provided a ram to be sacrificed. But of course, this prefigures the one great sacrifice that indeed God would provide the lamb, his son, and he would take wood on his back up a mountain in obedience to the Father and fulfill that great uh, image there that we, we had with Abraham and Isaac. I'm not familiar with agriculture. I was raised in the Bay Area and worked in L.A., but uh, at a Bible study, uh, it came up that uh, the lamb is a very easy animal to kill, shall we say. I mean, we're talking about for agricultural purposes. They don't fight back. They're just, and I'm thinking, Christ, you know, that there is a similar similarity between the lamb and Christ. He didn't fight back, not with Pilate. And uh, he's an appropriate, the, the, the lamb of God is an appropriate uh, metaphor. Very much so. You know, it, there's an innocence. You know, it, it, when you go to the, the great question, John, and I'm glad you bring this up, of uh, what is truth from Pilate to Christ, Pope Benedict XVI and his work, now Emeritus, of course, Ben XVI and his work, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, his second volume of Jesus of Nazareth, where he's looking at the passion narrative, uh, talks about how Christ's response to Pilate is the most powerful revelation of what truth is. What is he talking about? Well, he doesn't respond to Pilate in words, but he assumes the cross, he goes up the mountain, and what he reveals to us, and this is what uh, Paul records in 2 Philippians, or rather Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, he reveals to us that essentially to be made poor on the cross is the place where God reproduces power within us. Wow. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 6, 11, that Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he was made obedient, obedient unto the cross. In this profound insight into the life of the Trinity, Christ reveals to us that to be obedient, to submit to God's will, is how we reproduce God's power within us. What does that power look like? The power to forgive sins when he has no reason to do it. No one was apologizing there at the foot of the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's power, John, because ultimately it's freedom. We realize in our relationship with God, true freedom, true power, when we imitate what Christ does and says on the cross. This is what it means to be a lamb. We have to be made vulnerable, John. We have to be innocent. We have yes. to be, in the spirit of St. Therese, little. You know, we look at passive as this almost negative virtue today, when in reality, if it speaks more to cooperating in God's grace, but being little, it is the loftiest of virtues. This is why humility is this towering virtue. 
And so, yeah, I'm grateful that you brought that up because that's important. And remember what we talked about last week, John. John the Evangelist is a beloved disciple. The reason why he's beloved is because he was so humble. He was a contemplative. He knew, he knew what it meant to be a beloved disciple. And you know, as we're talking about this, it brings us back to this much larger theme of John to consider as it relates to the Lamb of God, because we're never going to be able to do this whole relationship with God thing in humility and meekness and vulnerability if we do not have a vibrant relationship with God, if we do not understand what it means to live in God. And so I want to go to John 6 and really capture some very important pieces here as we talk about the Lamb of God. So if you have your Bibles out there, if you go to John chapter 6, now, if we're Catholic out there and you're listening, you very well know that this is the Eucharistic discourse, and maybe for us non-Catholics as well, maybe we don't know, but we know John chapter 6 is the Eucharistic discourse, and we usually read this chapter, and we don't read it within the context of the whole. I want to offer up the context as a whole, as much as we can in our short time. So, if you look at John chapter 6, in the opening verses, it's the feeding of the 5,000. He makes the point, as he's going up the hills, that is John, that Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover. Three times this feast is mentioned in John. It was celebrated annually in Jerusalem to commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Central to the feast is a liturgical meal called a Seder in which the story of the Exodus is retold, psalms are sung, and a lamb is eaten with unleavened bread and other condiments. The evangelist mentions this upcoming feast to hint that Jesus will give new and greater meaning to the Passover. He is the true Lamb of God, whose redeeming work will accomplish a new deliverance from the slavery of sin and a sacramental and liturgical meal. The significance of the Passover, here placed in the background of John 6, will move to the foreground when Jesus transformed this feast into the memorial meal of the New Covenant at the Last Supper. Thanks, John. And John was there reading from the Ignatius um, Catholic Study Bible Commentary for a nice little summary of Passover and and what's going on here in the mind of the Jew in the first century. I want to jump into the, the feeding of the 5,000 here, John, as it relates to what is to come in future verses in this chapter, and just make the simple connection. Our Lord is performing a miracle with these barley loaves, which, by the way, in antiquity is food for the poor, food of the poor. Uh, so, again, it's about poverty. It's about being, about, you know, being the poor in spirit, as Matthew 5 Uh, 2, 3, and 4 talks about. So, ultimately, here you have this miracle where he transforms uh, the loaves and the fishes to be this meal that can feed 5,000 and and just um, a a handful of loaves and a handful of fish. Now, why is this important? What other miracle has John already recorded? Well, John 2, the wedding feast at Cana, there is a transformation 
of uh, water to wine, right? So you have bread and wine as the central uh, images or motifs, if you will, in Christ's miracles, clearly anticipating the early church Eucharistic and liturgical meal. And I might point out there were vast quantities of wine in chapter 2 and vast quantities of bread in chapter 6. Yes, and this is certainly important when you start to talk about what is happening in the liturgy, in the Eucharist. And oh, by the way, we talk about the word Eucharist. When Christ is giving thanks in this chapter, given thanks, the Greek there is Eucharisteros, where we get the word Eucharist. Now, moving forward to the discourse itself, there are some points I want to talk about, especially as they highlight this image of the Lamb of God. And pay close attention to this, because I just I believe this to be one of those salient, salient truths that come to us uh, from John chapter 6. If you were to read the Greek in this chapter, John, from verses 49 to 53, Christ is using this estheo or phago in the Greek, okay, which is the translation simply, it's, it's how we would eat normal food. He says, if you eat, mm. right? It's just how we would eat normal food. In verse 54, he transitions from estheo or phago to trogo, right? So we read in verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Why is he doing this? Because they're not getting it. You know, the, the Jews were disputing among themselves in verse 52 because for Christ to say the words, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I mean, this is barbaric imagery. This wasn't symbolic. And if anyone out there thought this might be symbolic, all you have to do is go down to verse 66 and see that the the disciples left him. Why would the disciples who slept with him, who drank with him, who saw his miracles, they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, why in the world would the disciples leave our Lord if this was something purely symbolic? No, something else is going on here. Because in verse 54, the trogo in its literal translation means to chew or to gnaw. The, the image is, is one of chewing on animals, cattle. Uh, lamb, right? And this certainly conjures up something so much more. Now, what's important for us is, John, the evangelist here has already established who Christ is. He is the Lamb of God. Now, he's revealing to us that we must eat of the Lamb of God. Remember in Passover, we forget this truth. You put blood on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass you by, right? But you needed to eat of the flesh of the lamb to live. Exactly. Don't eat the flesh, you lose your kid. (laughs) We forget that. And the kid, the young lad, the boy would always have to say, what is the meaning of this night? I always find that very important because it's the discerning question. Why? What is the meaning of this night? He wants us asking, John, the evangelist, wants us asking, what is the meaning of this? It is a new Passover. What in the world is he talking about? 
Well, he says it clearly. You must eat of the flesh and drink of the blood. And then what's fascinating, John, is the next verse, this trogon, this plural form of trogon in the Greek, implies this constant consumption. Because the Eucharist is a perpetual banquet. So you had read that commentary piece and it talked about the supper. You know, when John the Evangelist writes the book of Revelation and he's and chapter, nine, chapter 19, verse 7, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is he talking about? But this call for us to enter into this marital embrace, this kind of bridal union with God himself in the Eucharist, and that, in fact, this sacrament is the source and summit of our faith because it is there where we truly receive our Lord. And as we'd already noted, John, we reproduce the power of God within us. And the apostles did not lose this because from the get-go, they celebrated the Eucharist. Yes, do this in remembrance of me. Not write this, Mm -hmm. do this. This is why we, we are, and this is a very important point to bring in here as we talk about this marriage supper when Christ in Mark 14, 24 says, this is the blood of the new covenant, he's also saying this is the blood of the New Testament. If you're to go into the church fathers, there was only one New Testament for the first 175 years or so, and it was the Eucharist. That's why I say, and I get asked uh, ask the question, where is the New Testament in the Mass? Ah, the Mass is the New Testament, exactly. according to Mark 14, 24. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the gospel, the Evangelion, John, is the transforming message. What transforms us more into his image than the Eucharist? This is at the heart of our faith. And I dare say, John, for all Christians out there, go into the church fathers. This is at the heart of all Christian faith, because this was the New Testament. And, And again, this is extraordinary for some of us if we're hearing this for the first time. But this is what the Lamb of God is all about, that we would enter into this, as Revelation 19.7 says, marital embrace, that we might be renewed, transformed. We talked about in the opening that we are made a new creation in Christ. Wow, that we could actually receive him. Christ is performing a miracle at a wedding feast because the supernatural is ever-present at every wedding feast uh, in the the, uh, liturgical meal. Yes, it is. Well, that wraps up our time here, John. We can well imagine why John is called the theologian and how he soars. We hardly scratched the surface today, but I did want to, to drop a few seeds in that soil because we do uh, need to appreciate this and hopefully it gets excited to, to study more theology and see how Christ fulfills and transforms uh, the Old, Old Testament that we might be uh, better uh, doers and, uh, and uh, just more faithful people in what it means to be Christian and Catholic. He is so deep, and he writes so beautifully, that you can't help but just kind of fall in love with him. I just love him. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, and God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, 
Heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at J-H-O-L-L-J-M-J at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to The Seeds of Truth on KKXX.